Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Lars Ulrich. All of us struggled with different levels of insecurities about what each of us were bringing to our own instruments. The compensation was to overplay all the time, overplay. Another drum fill, a crazier drum beat, more sideways shit, fucking the craziest thing that I can come up with. James Hetfield. We were so defensive about our process. <laughs> it was more of a punk rock approach, which was the exact opposite of what we thought of Bob Rock. He knew a lot and, and we didn't give him credit for any of that stuff, but it took time to allow that into our world. Kirk Hammett. When I would show up with like, okay, I got this part and now we need to fit it into this solo. He would just like, look at me and say, is that even in key? And I would just be like so crushed, you know, as a guitar player, you don't want to hear something like that. And so I had never had someone directly challenge me in the studio like that and go, that guitar lick, it's not working. It's not greasy enough. The Metallica Podcast. The Black Album. This is side four. Struggle within. Part of the journey of the Black Album is then Justice for All. It wouldn't be the Black Album. It wasn't for Injustice for All, which wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Master Puppets. I mean, all of it fucking relates to each other. It's it's yeah, all it's just all, a it's, part of the same. Yeah, path, you know? it's all part of the same tapestry. You know, it's and it's you know it, it's evolution. It's just the band's evolution and how we just evolved, considering you know different factors, different circumstances, and and the consequences of all that. I mean, by the time, you know, on the Black Album, I mean, it probably was a couple of weeks, maybe, maybe a week, at least a week, maybe two weeks of just moving shit around, finding the sweet spot, you know, baffles, reconstructing this, this drum, that drum. There was a guy called the Drum Doctor. It was like a whole different thing, whole different approach. Our analogy was that it was um, because it's a it's a soul studio. It's just you know a lot of the complexes at that time were three studios in one building, or you know you'd go out in the hallway and there'd be somebody else. So there were a lot of distractions, but at one on one, it was one studio space. So you were sort of left to your own devices. And at that time, I remember, it was like, yeah, you know, nobody's going to come fuck with us and keep the record company outside. But it was a pretty significant different undertaking in terms of just all four of us being in the same space, playing together, trying to get more of a live thing. Up till then, at least on Justice and Puppets, I think on Lightning too, it was more, okay, uh, one, two, three, start, and then James and I would play, and then, you know, two minutes later when the tempo would vary or I would fuck up or whatever, then Fleming would stop, and then we'd start over again, but it was kind of what we knew, and obviously in our mind it was successful, but again, part of going along with Bob 
and that whole new mentality was to to try and be open to new things. And certainly the four of us in the same space was a new thing. Jason Newstead, Metallica bassist from 1986 to 2001. Once the drums are the template and James locks that early shit on, then I just, man, I'm just fucking riding, man. I'm just coasting through that shit because it's so well done. <laughs> Lars, man. Okay. He was in there like how many, how many months it took to do the, dude, what the fuck? You know, I didn't realize till later how artistic it really was. But back then I'm going, I understand if there's a Neil Peart part or Igor Cavalera or something, with, all that, and it takes a minute. All right, I get that part, right? But not buka, buka. We always just recorded in the room and rocked. So but let's start with Bob dealing with that as like the little foundation deal. And then all the other stuff dances on top. Bob Rock. The Black Album producer. Now, the thing is, I saw the cult because uh, the cult opened up for them on the Justice Tour. I had bought the Justice album and I kind of got what was going on. Everybody had Metallica t shirts, so I bought that and I listened to it. The Sonics, I mean, it's become iconic, the sound of that album. But to me, especially after seeing them, I stayed and watched Metallica after the cult, and I went, you know, they don't sound anything like that record live. And I remember having these conversations with Bob early on. I remember a clear thing about there was some Aerosmith thing that he had been involved in where in the video it was like a best of video from the studio and Steven Tyler was like singing. And at one point, while he was laying down a vocal, he was holding the mic with his hand. And I remember going like, Bob, how, how could you let him hold the mic with his hand? Didn't that like fuck up the sound of it? And Bob was going, it's all about the performance. It's all about the performance and just the energy, the, the confidence, the charisma that comes out of the vocal, whether he would hold the mic while he was singing. Or I guess when I started producing, I brought all of the things that I did before as an engineer and as a mixer. And as a player, just knowing how a musician feels, you know, going into a studio can be very uncomfortable. And I saw all the problems, all the rules in studios that really got in the way of making great records. So I think that experience really helped me because I focused, I looked at the studio as basically a haven for musicians to be comfortable and make the best record they want. We were so defensive about our process. <laughs> and then he came in with that, like Lars was saying about, you know, not even just single tracking, which I found so freeing because I felt, I know my voice is just not great. You have to double it to make it sound smooth, to make it sound palatable to the ear. <laughs> All those 70s tricks or whatever. And I was out there, it was more of a punk rock approach even, you know, which was the exact opposite of what we thought of Bob Rock. But getting to know him over the years, it's like, he's done a lot of punk rock bands. He knew a lot and, and we didn't give him credit for any of that stuff, but it took time to allow that into our world. I asked him how he recorded before, and he said, well, I'd sing a line, get the line right, and then we'd double it, which is 
there's two tracks of vocals. And then we moved to the next line. And I said, well, why would you do that? And he said, well, it sounded big. And I said, well, if I get a vocal sound that sounds big, you don't have to double it. I can get you a vocal sound that sounds amazing. So you can just sing whenever you want and you don't have to double it. You see, the process of doubling, it's limiting what you can do. So that was one of the things that I kind of said. And as soon as he found that freedom, he enjoyed it. You know, I, I guess the Black Album, he became a singer. But yeah, doubling the vocal was always limiting because whatever I sang, I would have to sing it again exactly the same. So thank you, Bob Rock, for helping me get out of my shell vocally. David Frick, rock critic, Rolling Stone. I interviewed the band when they made Lulu with Lou Reed. And at one point... You know, James was talking about how working with Lou had really opened his eyes as to what you could do with lyrics, with songwriting. And th we're talking 30 years, 35 years down the line from the original demo from Kill 'Em All, and he's still learning. That's what the great ones do. They don't stop learning, and they never make the mistake of, a, of claiming that they know it all. What James was doing on the Black Album as a lyric writer is really part and parcel of the job, but it also was something that was necessary for him as a young man with a history that he had to deal with, relationships and his family, religion, all part of what he wrote, and the band being there to help him get to the point where he could open himself up like that. And he didn't stop doing it because that's what songwriters do. Picasso didn't stop using the color blue when he was 90 years old. He just used it in a different way. We need lyrics somehow to, for people to understand what this song is about, you know, but to actually add a character, add a narrative or a something to the song that people can actually sing along with or grasp onto. It wasn't just someone screaming and yelling about how pissed off they are. Here's the next level of vocal that goes along with how powerful the musical part is. When we cut the basics, a lot of the lyrics weren't finished. So James would sing vowels, right? There'd be a title in most of the songs there. Once there was lyric and I kept telling him about the lyrics, like, I don't really get a song until there's lyrics. And it kind of pissed him off, whatever. But I was saying, that's when I know what, in a funny way, how to finish a song. When you have the lyric, it for whatever, that's the way I see it. In the process of every song is the lyric, and we sang it, it became clear of what we had to do. And it has a lot to do with arrangements and, and everything, you know. Once that sound, like, for instance, what the chorus is and what it means and why you have to focus on something, which brings into a harmony or a change in 
a guitar sound or something. I think Bob Rock, what he did was he brought a sensibility that allowed them to think in terms of songs, not just composition. Those are two different things. Ultimately, that's what a producer does. A producer is sort of the, I don't want to say the all-seeing ear, but the producer has to be the person in that space, man or a woman, uh, regardless, you know, who's doing it, who is hearing everything and how it fits together. You know, you're, it's like you're standing on top of a hill watching a battle take place. We talked a lot of some of the conflicts and the crazy, oh my God, there's a producer here. But at the same time, I don't want it to be, to leave out the fact that obviously it was exciting because we were venturing into someplace unknown. And so as tumultuous as, as some of that journey ended up being, there was a, well, like, wow, we're, we're doing something different and that's really fresh and fun. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album. Side 4 continues. I remember the first time when I felt really kind of challenged, like Kirk was saying earlier about his challenge with Bob Rock, you know, around the song Sandman. I had a whole thing written out about, I was really into the band Fear at the moment, and there was this perfect family song. It's where I, I wanted to write something about that. You know, so disrupting the perfect family. It was basically this song about crib death and how it changed your family. Uh, it was like an act of not even a God, an act of something where it changed the dynamic of the family. And I wrote these lyrics out and I was super into them. And <laughs> I know Bob and I think Lars was there. Oh, yeah. And they're going, eh, <laughs> we, um, I think we have higher expectations for this song in particular. It's like, uh-oh, oh no. It was like, I needed to step up. It wasn't enough just for me to write what I felt about, that I needed to look outside of myself a little more and bring the challenge of the rest of the band 
up to another level. And and it is possible that, you know, they heard, because I'm not really great at hearing the song that everyone else is going to like. I, I like a song, and that's that. Um, other people have their spin on it. Bob and Lars both felt that Sandman was a particularly important song. So they helped me to... You know, they challenged me to step up to another level, and it's still about children and kind of their own fears and deaths in their own way internally. And, you know, what fears do you have as a kid? So, and then it grew to that whole, obviously, the, you know, the prayer, and then Bob Rock's son coming in and being the, the, the answer to the, now I lay me down to sleep, you know, that whole thing. It just, it forced me to go to another level, which I'm grateful for, but I was freaking pissed at the moment. And that's not the first time it's happened. It's not going to be the last time it's happened either. So as, as an artist, I was challenged and it was, it was a, a growing experience. The first time that we really sort of started maximizing that potential was on the Black Album. And her Sandman, it really, it's sort of like the hard rock equivalent of the Gettysburg Address. You know exactly what you get when Lincoln says four score and seven years ago. You know exactly what you're going to get when that Kirk riff comes in. And of course, everything that follows from it is logical, but also incredibly dynamic and surprising. You know, logic can be very surprising. My experiences with Bob, <laughs> it just seemed like, you know, everything was pretty good until, I mean, I started Until uh, Bob showed up. Until, until the until, first day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, he he yeah, made just, you accountable, Kirk. All right, let's get... Yeah. Kind of real here. Yeah, yeah. You know, he gave you homework to do, and you didn't do your homework. No, no, that's not true. <laughs> that is not true. All right. Okay. Adam Dubin, documentary filmmaker. It's, I guess, become known as so somewhat famous part where Kirk was trying to get the solo, and he was having trouble that day. And Bob Rock kind of ribbed him a little bit. I think was trying to push him. You know, and saying, well, when guitar player doesn't do his homework, he says the sounds aren't working for him. And... I think what he was doing was pushing Kirk a little. Now, Kirk says he did do his homework, and sometimes it doesn't work. And I think every guitar player who's ever recorded could attest to that. You know what I mean? You do your homework, but your fingers just won't do what you thought of, get to that moment. And um, I think the ultimate proof is that when he nailed the solo to Unforgiven, at least in my opinion, it's one of the greatest solos that, that Kirk Hammett's ever done.
that's saying a lot because he's done a lot of great solos. But that one, the way that solo interlocks with the actual music and builds along with all the rest of the tracks, I think it's just beautiful. I mean, as great as anything in, in all of rock, you know, you could put it up against something Jimmy Page did or, or Hendrick, any, anybody. And I think that solo's up there with it. That's the way it was spun, as me not doing my homework. The, the, the famous example is him giving me shit about the guitar solo in Unforgiven. The thing with Bob was when it got time to do, like, like sit down and do guitar solos, you know, the, the stuff that I was really confident about and feeling really spontaneous about, that would always fly, and Bob would always embrace that, you know? He'd in, in, embrace the more like improvisational type of stuff and the stuff that would that, that, that I'd already worked out that sounded like more lively and not so worked out. I mean, we butted heads, but there's a lot of humor involved in everything, like the whole thing about the guitar solo with Kirk. In the end, if you look at the video, okay, basically, I was just pissed because of the moment but in the video, the solo is actually what I suggested in the first place. Do you know what I mean? We went through the whole process. I was a dickhead the way I approached it, and I admit that. Okay, but the bottom line is we got the solo by that kind of that confrontation. When I would show up with like, okay, I got this part, and now we need to fit it into this solo, he would just like look at me and say, is that even in key? And I would just be like so crushed, you know, as a guitar player. I mean, you know, you, you don't want to hear something like that. And so I had never had someone directly challenge me in the studio like that and go, that guitar lick, it's not working. It's not greasy enough. And that was his turn, you know, or you're playing just like way too ahead of the beat. You got to pull it back. And these were things I had never heard before. I just go out there and just go for the throat, you know, just set everything on 11, take out as many like you know heads as possible, you know. I was a, <laughs> I was a head cutter. But Bob, you know, even like when I was playing slow, I was still like really edgy and always like slightly ahead. But Bob brought that. He taught me to be more aware of things like being more more bluesy, not being so rushed, and not just like trying to like fit square things into round holes, which I experienced a, a lot in the past. And sometimes it, it worked, sometimes it didn't, but he totally just would, would call me out and go, what are you doing? You know, just play, just play. I got the assistant engineer to go back to all the multi-tracks and all the takes of all the songs and record all the solos and put it on a tape for every song. So Kirk, while he wasn't thinking about the solos, played like about 30 different solos on each song. So I gave him the tapes of all those songs and that's where all the solos came from, rather than having to think on the spot. So the process of just realizing all that work we did being in the studio actually is part of what ended up happening. So we had all those solos that he wasn't thinking, and he took all the great stuff out of it and assembled solos. And so when it came time to do the Unforgiven solo, I had this whole thing worked out, and I played everything that I'd worked out, and he just looked at me, and I just, like, I was actually shocked. 
and I didn't know what to say or do. And I was actually at a loss of words and I'd never been in a situation like that with so much pressure. Someone just like right in my face going, play something. I, I had no idea what to play, nothing. I had no, like not even an idea of where to start. And he just said, come on, let's do the next take. Hit the take. Just like sing a couple lines here and there. My throat's really shitty. This is 139. And that, that almost the entire solo that's on the album came out in, in, in that, that next take. Mm. And it was crazy because it was the first time that I was, I felt like I was backed up into a corner, literally backed up into a corner. And this guy's like almost about to scream in my face. And like the only way to get free was to play this guitar solo that he wanted me to play. And I didn't know what to play. And I played what literally what is on the album. And it, you know, it, that whole experience just kind of like opened my eyes onto being like more critical of my playing overall and just embracing other approaches and not always going for the throat all the time, you know? And, and it's a real subtle thing that he taught me, but it's it's been hugely important and something that I can always work on all the time, you know, it's always room for improvement. That was the big thing that Bob kind of like set me on my path. So leaning into the uncomfortable, you learned a lot. A absolutely, about yourself. absolutely. And, and the moment, being yeah. in the moment. And Bob was real. I mean, Bob was a guitar player. Yep. That was absolutely. super helpful for you and I. Yes. You know, sonically yep. and playing wise, he taught me a lot of stuff right there. Yep. But he kind of knew as a guitar player, this could be better. And we had to trust that a little bit. We didn't know how to get there. But yeah, the word subtle mm -hmm. was not in our vocabulary whatsoever. No. And, and for you to go to that place, must have been difficult. It's like he had to force you into that place. Oh, yeah. But you got there, and it's a freaking awesome solo. Well, it, it it was a really, it was a breakthrough for me. I mean, you know, it kind of like changed my whole attitude toward my playing. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album. Side 4 continues. It's possible that we were just trying to hide our lack of talent by just, you know, all the time. And we were afraid to show somebody else that, you know, we're not actually great musicians individually, but as a unit, we're freaking kick-ass, you know? So him kind of picking that apart individually, and he forced us to grow that way. Also, I think, you know, there was a certain sensitivity that I think he tried to bring to the music, too. I mean, in, in a lot of the quieter parts, he would always just say to me, think of what's going on. Think of the dynamic. It's quiet. Listen to the pulse and just put yourself in there. All of us struggled with different levels of insecurities about what each of us were bringing to our own instruments. The compensation was to overplay all the time, overplay another drum fill, a crazier drum beat, more sideways shit, fucking the craziest thing that I can come up with. There was just a lot of the mentality at that point. As we got into the simpler songs and like Kirk is saying, you know, started hearing these words like subtleties and space. And (laughs) I mean, remember we were actually recording space at one point. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, so that was the hardest thing to record. Yeah, no, we we sit there (laughs) like trying to make each other laugh. We we actually found ourselves recording space. I don't know if it was in the that pause in Sad But True or we did 28 takes of, of, that, <laughs> of that space in Sad But True. Who the fuck knows? The molecules had that to line up great right. space take. I remember Bob Rock bringing meditation into the studio. You know, okay, before a song, we're going to sit here and we're going to do a, a meditation and kind of clear our heads. And I was, I was sitting there the whole time like, no, no way. None of this hippy trippy shit. And now I tell you, I don't leave the house without doing it, you know. <laughs> so meditation, sure. I, I'm sure that happened at some level, yeah. Just because I don't remember it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Uh, but I am pretty good at compartmentalizing things from my past. But we were just trying to figure it all out and chart a new course and figure out what it all meant. When did I realize that all this stuff with Bob Rock, all these arguments and all this nonsense was worth it? I remember clearly hearing some of James's vocals was... Did you each of you guys have kind of a eureka moment where it was like, this is really working and, well, uh, and all this I, arguments and I, all this stuff is worth it? I have to be honest. In the entire time we were, we were making the Black Album, we were, we were Bob Rock, I was so goddamn nervous, man, because the material was so <laughs> goddamn different, you know? And I just, I couldn't help but thinking that Bob is e- either our savior or he's going to sink us. <laughs> and I just, I felt so conflicted uh, on whether or not I should just like hug this guy or just run out of the room, you know, and just like deal with my own emotions. <laughs> but there, but there, there was a point where I, I, I was just like, okay, okay. If no one fucking likes this album, I know the four of us are going to fucking like this album. Rob Halford. Judas Priest. I tell it, the Black Album for me is all thriller, no filler. 
that's what it is. It's just solid from the beginning to the end. The production on that record is phenomenal. It's great. But one of his greatest works ever. Lena Dawes, music journalist. The Black Album really was a slower, more thoughtful, more nuanced album. For me, interviewing a lot of African-American heavy metal fans, they really liked the Black Album because the groove of the rhythm section, it really was similar to a lot of kind of Black-centric or Black-originated music. So there was a commonality that went from one genre to another that I think that people who had grown up listening to primarily, let's say, uh, R&B, soul, funk, maybe even some early hip-hop, they could hear the, the similarities just in terms of that slow, deep groove and the interplay between the bass and the drums on that album. It was almost something that you could move to. I think it was a way more kind of accessible album than, um, you know, the earlier album. Ross Halfin, photographer. My best analogy is it's their Led Zeppelin IV or their version of Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast in the sense that it elevated them from being a theatre band who are on a bill with other bands to a stadium band. I mean, it really did. That, you know, the Black Album has become the album. Whatever, you know, no matter what Metallica will ever put out, it will always be the Black Album. The Black Album seemed to have looked at what does heavy mean? Does heavy mean like D beats, 4 4, you know, like fast, up tempo, energized riffs? Or does it mean kind of thinking about emotions and soul and kind of the human condition? And I think that the Black Album really introduced different ways of thinking, like really kind of push that thought or that idea forward. So did it change them? I think actually what it did was get them back to something they knew how to do already, which was rehearse. Except now the stakes were higher. They're essentially, if not writing together, they're composing the final result together. And you've got Bob there paying attention to everything that's happening in the room, uh, in the air, what's coming out the speakers. It's analogous to playing live, but you're actually putting it down in a more permanent way and with everything that goes with it. It was a task. At one point, I remember just like, you know, just sitting there, just kind of like going, is this ever going to end? Because we were like, I think at one point a year had already passed and we're still working on the album. We've been through a lot of inner turmoil for sure. You know, at the end of the day, we all just want the same thing. We want to be able to like just make the best music possible. It's that one time, that place in time, where it all came together, and it's an amazing thing. That's why I still make records, because I long for having a moment like that again. But, you know, the last day when we finished mastering and we were in New York, I said to them, you'll never see me again. I never want to work with you again. I was so fucking tired. And when I started hearing it on the radio, I'm going like, oh, fuck. <laughs> 
I mean, we laugh about it, but, you know, we were just sick and tired of seeing each other because I love them all. But I'm just saying, at that moment, we were done. Our skin was green from coffee, and we hadn't slept in a week, and we were just fucking done. Like, I never wanted to hear the Metallica name again. I've had little moments through my career, but in terms of the album, that just remains as, like, a very special thing. It's a combination of the point in my life, in their life, just everything at that moment made that album. That's where James's was writing, where it was coming from. The riffs, everything, just the decisions they made on how to change. It's like, that's what's so amazing, and like I still call them records, because I believe all the great records is all about the timing and this convergence of all sorts of elements. And it just, it worked. And you can't reproduce that. There's no way we could ma ever make the Black Album again. Because it, it's just not going to happen. Because of all those elements. Where they were in their personal lives. You know, everything. And that's what iconic records are. I tell you, Bob opened up my mind. He opened up my heart. He opened up so much of me to what could be. And I'm like, I will be forever grateful to Bob Rock. When you're doing these things, I guess the objective is to sort of let go of control to a degree, but also steer or shape it towards what your vision is. And so James asked earlier about the success of the album. And to me, the initial success of the album was that we had the balls to abandon the path that we were on, you know, before, and that we had the balls and the courage to take this left turn, write these shorter songs, and be more vulnerable. Coming up next on the Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, Side 5, Road Warriors. Hi folks! Good evening, Wembley and the world! First of all, the show must go on and we'll start with an American band, three times Grammy Award winners, please welcome Metallica! Another kind of mindfuck day was the Freddie Mercury tribute event which took place at Wembley Stadium. We were invited to play. We were still sort of kind of outsiders. James got up and sang with Queen and we got to play early in the afternoon. It certainly was in line with those kind of out-of-body experiences. And here we were in the most mainstream of events. Russians were the enemy, yeah. Everything bad that was on this planet was there, <laughs> or, or because of that. But when I went there, I recall that, you know, we all went out to take some photos at the Red Square, and it was at night, and it was so surreal and scary to me. I got scared. I didn't want to be there. Like, I had a panic attack. Like, I can't be here. You know, Russia, as much as it was sort of open, it kind of wasn't. Um, we had these strange guys who watched us a lot. And if you walked up the road, they sort of followed you everywhere. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, we are being followed then. Yeah, these KGB guys, is that the deal? And they followed us around everywhere. So, uh, I'll play some new crap now. You got the new one? Right on. This is a happy little one. I'm sure you fucking all dig. 
Sad, but true. We would often talk about how great it was seeing Leonard Skinner that day on the green, and then a few years later to be actually be on a day on the green bill. I mean, it was huge for us because we were just kids. And then all of a sudden, you know, here we are, we're in a band and we're playing down the green. I mean, it is like, at that point, it was the ultimate. There wasn't anything better. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album. Executive produced by Lex Friedman for Art19 at Amazon Music. Produced by Lars Murray and Dennis Shire for PopCult. Story producers and writers, Mike Mettler and Catherine Turman. Mixing, sound design and editing, Rob Spate. Showrunner and creative direction, Dennis Shire. If you love what you've heard, give us a five-star review and share this podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and ask your fellow Metallica fans to subscribe too. I'm Claire Sturgis. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.